This morning, we're continuing our sermon series on the letter of the Apostle Paul to the Ephesian church. We're walking through this first main paragraph that highlights what verse 3 calls every spiritual blessing in Christ and what verse 13 calls the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. We spent two Sundays looking at the first part of that blessing in this outline for you, chosen for adoption by the Father, and now we're on to the second, which is redeemed for unity by the Son. Let's read, starting in verse 3. Listen carefully. These are God's words. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with His pleasure and will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one He loves. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure which He purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In Him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of His glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Lord, we continue to soak in the overflowing, abundant riches of this first paragraph in the letter. Lord, we're amazed at uh, word after word spilling out of the Apostle Paul's pen. We desire to be infected by his amazement, his wonder, his delight, his awe. And so we would pray in this hour again, speak to us, Lord, clearly by your word and through your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, redemption is the key word in verse 7. It was used to describe the freeing of a slave from captivity, which would involve a payment. We would call that a ransom. And redemption is one of the most consistent themes that run throughout all of Scripture. In fact, uh, every ancient Israelite would have pointed back to one single redemption event as uh, the crux of their national history, and that was the Passover event. The Passover event was the culmination of the ten plagues um, that triggered the redemption of God's people from over 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And that whole picture, uh, the ten plagues leading to the release of the people, the chasing of the Egyptian army after the people fleeing into the desert, the, the rescue of God's people from their clutches through the parting of the Red Sea, it was all salvation. It was all about redemption. And the scripture writers 
for centuries after that, continued to consistently and singularly point back to that model of how God saves, how He redeems His people. When we move into the New Testament, the only change is that slavery is no longer physical slavery to a political nation, but slavery is universal. Slavery is bondage to sin as the master, and so we need a different kind of redemption, a different level of redemption. For Grace Redeemer Church, redemption is at the heart of our identity. But redemption in our culture has a very different sense. One example I thought of was uh, the Shawshank Redemption, a movie from 1994. Andy, played by Tim Robbins, is wrongly accused and convicted of the murders of his wife and her lover. He's uh, thrown in prison for two consecutive life terms. And in prison, he's repeatedly assaulted by a gang of fellow inmates. He's mistreated by corrupt prison guards and even the warden himself. And he loses his one chance at proving his innocence. How does Andy find redemption? The answer is, actually, he doesn't find it. He makes it. He forges it on his own. He achieves his own justice. One day, Andy disappears from his cell. Turns out that he had this little rock hammer, and he'd been chiseling away, digging a tunnel for over 19 years of his captivity. And when he's out, he goes to the bank. He withdraws the money that he had been laundering on behalf of the prison warden. He sends to the newspaper all the evidence that he had collected about the criminal behavior of the prison leaders, thus getting his revenge. And he moves to Mexico where his buddy Red, who is released after, I think, 40 years, eventually joins him and they enjoy their freedom off into the sunset. You want redemption? The message is no one's going to hand it to you. You need to work at it. You need to figure it out. You need to get a little lucky. At least that's the world's understanding of redemption. But the Apostle Paul says something very different, in fact, the exact opposite in verse 7. Here it is again. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Don't ignore those first two words, in Him, in Christ. Last month in the second message of the series, we highlighted those two little words talking about how foundational they are to all of God's salvation plan. Ten times in these 12 verses that I read again for us, Paul says, in Christ or in Him. And again, the, the recap there is if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. By virtue of faith in Him as Lord and Savior, then um, you're united to Him, and the spiritual reality is that whatever happened to Jesus happened to you. So union with Christ, being in Him, in Christ means He died in your place, and so it's as if you died to your sin. You've already paid the penalty for your sin. And Jesus rose from the dead, and if you're in Christ, it means you've already been raised to newness of life. Victory over sin and death are already yours. They're guaranteed, and His physical resurrection is the proof. Only in Christ can anyone find redemption, and no one can make it for themselves. 
You know, there's a saying, I paid a king's ransom for that. Some of you this week paid a king's ransom for an iPhone X. My kids tell me it's a 10. It looks like an X to me. Uh, and and what, what happened to number nine? But th- that phrase, a, a king's ransom, right? It's, it, it, the idea is as if the king were being held in captivity, that's the kind of money you'd have to come up with to ransom the king. It's, it's a fancy way of saying a whole lot of money. Right, I paid a king's ransom for that. And, and that's the context, ransom, in verse 7, except there's a really dramatic twist that reveals the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ here because it's not the king who's held in bondage. It's his rebellious subjects. And yet, not only is the ransom paid by the king, the ransom payment he makes is his very own life. That's the upside-down kingdom that we talk about in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And He redeems out of His good pleasure simply because He wants to, because it delights Him to do so to the praise of His glory and grace. What does He free His rebellious subjects from? That connects the ransom payment with the very next phrase, the forgiveness of sin. So, He's freeing, he's ransoming his rebellious people from the mastery of sin and its ultimate consequence, which is death. Sin's debt can't just be eliminated. That's where the economics idea of debt forgiveness does not help us understand sin's forgiveness. Because when um, the credit card company forgives your debt because you've declared bankruptcy, or when the U.S. government forgives the debt of a developing country, pretty much the message is, don't worry about it. You don't owe this money anymore. And debt forgiveness means poof. It's gone. Now, of course, the forgiver pays the price, right? Uh, it doesn't just disappear into thin air, but um, that, that does not help us understand at, 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 at the proper depth what the forgiveness of sin, the the elimination of the debt that every sinner owes to our Creator and King really means, because God is holy. And because He's holy and perfect in His justice, He can't simply say, ah, don't worry about it. It's okay. No big deal. It is a big deal. And sin's consequence, because it is treason against the King, is death. Justice must be preserved. Payment must be made. The only question is, by whom? Whether it's a ransom payment or the satisfaction of debt, the answer that verse 7 gives us is, in Christ we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace, undeserved merit. Jesus paid the price for our redemption. Jesus satisfied the justice of the Father by suffering hell on the cross in the place of His believing yet sinful people. We've seen heroes in movies telling the bad guys, take me instead of my child, take me instead of the innocent one. And here we have the truest and most ultimate version of the greatest story ever told. Jesus the hero laying down His life on behalf of those who are not innocent but deserve the exact opposite. And yet the king's ransom is the very life of the king in payment and redemption of sinners like us. 
He gave His own life by shedding His own blood as the perfect sacrifice. And this morning, in a few minutes, as we approach the table of the Lord, we will celebrate the significance of Jesus' blood and the symbol of the wine as we eat and drink. Question for you to consider. Are you here because Christianity, because an environment of religion or friendly people or good music inspire you, make you feel good, give you a a, a dose of spiritual adrenaline to kind of carry you through the week? Is that why you're here? Or, more biblically motivated, are you here because you know that you are in bondage and that you could never... Uh, make the redemption payment that your rescue and deliverance so desperately need. You know it's impossible. And if you don't have that yet, you sense that GRC can help lead you to gain access by faith to this redemption. Is that why you're here? Out of desperation? To, to see your life saved? And if maybe you, you already live in that spiritual reality, of knowing that you have been redeemed, in which case the question becomes, do you passionately want to be here to praise the King who has redeemed you at the cost of His own life? And there is nothing greater in life to spend your time doing than in praise of the King who is the Redeemer. You you might say, this talk about bondage you know, I'm not, I know I'm not perfect. I've made mistakes in life, but bondage, that, that's too strong of a word. I don't feel like I'm enslaved to bad decisions and evil thoughts. I'm not all that bad. That's too strong of a word. But what I'd offer in response is this strong statement that I'd put on the table, okay? And it's this. On one hand, you don't ever do what you don't want to do. If I flip the coin to the other side, I I could say it this way. You always do what you want to do. Now, that sounds like the opposite of bondage, doesn't it? It sounds like an expression of freedom of the will, and it is. But uh, if we we play along with me, aren't, aren't there exceptions? Don't we sometimes get forced to do things that we don't want to do against our will? Guys get pressured into participating in um, the hazing of fraternity pledges, and they end up telling the police after one student dies, you know, I didn't want to participate, but I didn't think there was any way out. But what we'd have to say to that young man is, no, 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 your desire ruled, and you didn't do anything that you didn't want to do. There was stronger desire in you for peer approval for fitting in, for not looking weak by being the only guy to squeal. There was less desire to do the right thing, to call 911 and stop the insanity. You always choose according to your desire. Even if a robber puts a gun to your head and demands everything in your wallet or that you go to the ATM and withdraw the maximum for the day, wouldn't we say you act against your desires? Not really, because in that moment, what you want most, what you desire most strongly is to survive, and you act according to your desire, never in contradiction to it. 
You don't ever do what you don't want to do. On the other hand, the biblical reality is that every human being's desire has been strongly corrupted by sin. Like an addict, you want what is actually for your destruction, not for your flourishing. The heart has been flipped upside down. It abandons the wisdom of God and chooses its own path of wisdom, which always proves itself to be folly instead. And please hear me, I'm not saying that there are addicts and then everyone else. Every single one of us reflects this corruption of desire that leads to the destruction of choices, or destructive choices, rather. Whether or not there's a chemical substance that is affecting our choices or not, there is this high that our hearts are lured and enticed and entrapped by chasing after. And that's why the Apostle Peter writes, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. There's a battle going on that has to do with bondage. Is that why you're here? Out of desperation for rescue. And that's why James writes, In chapter 1 of his letter, uh, each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. You might not like the term bondage as a description of your life, especially because we live in a country that gives us all kinds of freedoms. But in light of sin's powerful influence over our hearts, apart from Christ, there is no better phrase to describe our reality, our struggle, our battle. If there's no desperation, if there's no understanding of real bondage to sin, then there's no need for a real Savior. And Christianity or church or religion in general simply become an extra way for you to manage life along with a self-help book and Dr. Phil and entertainment and recreation and escapes and coping mechanisms. But if there is desperation, if there is an understanding of bondage to sin, then you will increasingly see and savor every spiritual blessing in Christ as, as Paul is unfolding it here in Ephesians chapter 1. One question to wrap us up, a second, uh, a second thought. Redeemed for what? Might be too simple and obvious, but redeemed for what? Verse 10 gives us a purpose statement that completes the thought that's starting in verse 7. That is our focus verse for this morning. Um, why all this redemption and forgiveness in Christ and through His blood Verse 10 tells us, in order to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. You don't need me to tell you that we are surrounded by and our attention is consumed by and we are, our hearts are burdened by all kinds of huge issues, even just in politics, world superpowers, vying for position, never-ending wars between two people groups, uh, the oppression of the vulnerable, all important, all worth working for and sacrificing for. 
But achieving world peace is not our job. That's the church of Jesus Christ. Whatever semblance of peace humanity can achieve, it just won't last. And in fact, quite honestly, the Bible would tell us true peace is not possible apart from redemption by blood that makes possible the reconciliation between creatures, all sinful, and a holy and just and perfect Creator. That's at the heart of the church's purpose, to pray for and work towards unity in all things under Christ, to see everything and everyone restored to our proper relation before the King. That's the church's calling. And if it ends up looking like world peace, it won't be because we've worked at it, we've achieved it, we've brokered it. It will be because we have prayed and we have been used by God to spread the good news of every spiritual blessing in Christ in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Vertical peace with God through blood is the only means of even beginning to taste horizontal peace among men. Listen to Paul's letter to the Colossians, written at the same time as Ephesians, from the same prison in Rome as Paul awaited his execution at the very end of his life. Colossians 1, verse 19 and 20, For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him and through Him, to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Reconciliation through the blood of Jesus is alone what makes possible this cosmic peace between the Creator and His people. Same thing we hear in Ephesians. And then Colossians 1, 21 and 22 explain the need for this reconciliation. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now, those are gospel words, but now He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in His sight without blemish and free from accusation. You were alienated from God. You were enemies of God. We might add, quite, um, quite appropriately fitting this strong uh, context, strong language, you were in bondage to sin, enslaved to backwards, upside-down thinking, flowing out of your heart that was only going to drive you towards death, but God sent His Son. But God intervened. And as Ephesians 2.13 will later say, but Now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near, how? By the blood of Christ. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. And as we'll later sing as we approach the Lord's table, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with His blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. When He comes, our glorious King, all His ransomed home to bring, then anew this song will sing. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray. Lord, 
whether these words, these ideas are very familiar or absolutely new, being heard for the first time, we pray that your spirit would drive them deeply into our hearts, that your spirit would use these words of life to transform our minds, to reorient the actions of our bodies, all for the praise of your glory and grace. In the name of the one who shed his own blood, that we might be redeemed, that our sins might be forgiven. In Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.